everybody. Welcome. This is uh, Patricia Duff from The Common Good. We've got a terrific panel this afternoon following on the final presidential debate last night. I'm going to make this brief because we are we got a little late start due to some technical difficulties. Uh, but this unprecedented election cycle has brought more big news and events each week than most entire election years from the imminent confirmation of a Supreme Court justice, the New York Times reporting on a bank account in China for Trump's business, allegations about Hunter Biden from emails whose origin cannot be verified, and of course, the president himself getting COVID and having a quick recovery, all since the last debate. Um, so with Trump sagging in national polls in key states, Trump needed a boost, Biden needed to avoid making any gaffes, and both should have articulated a compelling closing argument. How did they fare? We've got a great panel. We've had a little bit of a change. I, I'm sorry to say that we miss, we're going to miss Michael Schmidt and Paul Begala. They were called away this morning, um, no doubt, because there's so much news breaking all the time. Uh, but we have two brilliant political experts and a great journalist to help us out. So Cynthia, we've got uh, Dr. Rachel Bittekofer, the election whisperer, one of the best known pollsters and strategists in the political arena. Uh, we have stepping in to help us, pollster strategist, Doug Schoen, one of the, I think one of the most brilliant guys in the business and I've known him for decades. And he's got a new book, The End of Democracy. <laughs> you might wanna take a look at that. Um, and he's worked uh, on both sides of the aisle for some top, top uh, candidates like Bill Clinton and um, foreign, um, foreign uh, dignitaries. But our moderator, the brilliant award-winning journalist, Cynthia McFadden, she's a senior investigative and legal correspondent at NBC News and was uh, at NBC and ABC uh, where she co-anchored Nightline in primetime for many years. Her, her investigative reporting is just astonishing and she's won many deserved awards. So Cynthia, I know you've got a lot of good questions yourself. Please take it for us. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Patricia. Well, let's start right off at 30,000 feet. Was there a winner last night, Doug? Yeah, I, I thought that um, both candidates were the winner. I thought that to Patricia's question, Donald Trump clearly improved his performance over uh, the first debate. I thought he articulated his vision of America and the future. And I thought that particularly uh, in the beginning of the debate, the first 45 minutes, uh, he did quite well. Uh, I thought Biden also in the first 45 minutes did well. By the second 45 minutes, I thought that as they got into a more contentious phase, I had a tough time Maybe it was the lateness of the hour, maybe it was the back and forth, but I had a tough time distinguishing what was being said and what it all meant uh, once we got into the issue of foreign bank accounts and Hunter Biden and Donald Trump and his taxes. But to answer your question simply, I thought Trump did, as I said, what he needed to do. I also thought Biden by and large held up and was um, uh, effective. I think it will probably tighten the race given that the voters who have not cast ballots are largely Republicans and independents or disproportionately so. I think it'll help Trump there. But if you ask me whether the dynamics of the race will change, I don't think they will. I think Biden is ahead and will continue to be ahead. 
Rachel, same question. Was there a winner? And if so, who was it? Rachel will be with us shortly. I apologize. Oh, well, there you go. Well, Doug, you and I get to natter on, Good. so that's fantastic. Well, Good. I mean, are you grading the president on the curve? I mean, is the fact that he didn't have a total meltdown um, the reason that you think he did pretty well last night? Or are you, are you using a sort of the same standard as you would use for any regulation um, candidate? I think I'm using the same standard. I mean, clearly he underperformed uh, dramatically in the last debate, uh, but uh, I thought that his answers on COVID were about as good as they could have been. Uh, I mean, the reality, as Biden said, of 220 odd million dead speaks for itself. But I thought that Trump made an argument, even if it involved exaggerations on the vaccine and on the treatments. But I thought he made an argument. And uh, I also thought that Biden made a case for a different direction for unity being an American president. So I thought that uh, both on a grading on a curve and absolutely Trump did fine, but I also think that Biden did not present any overarching reasons why people would not want to support him if in fact they were inclined in that direction. Is it fair to say, oh, Rachel, are you there? <laughs> Hello. Rachel? Well, I thought I heard her, or is that, did I imagine that? Did you hear her? I heard her. I okay. thought she was going to take issue with me, and I was looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, me too. Rachel, we need your voice. How are we going to make that happen? Team, are we getting there? Do we think? Working on it, working on it. And as you working said, technology does not want to be our friend today. I apologize, everyone. As some of you may have heard me say earlier, my first job in television was working for Fred Friendly, who, of course, was famously the president of CBS News and Edward R. Murrow's producer. And he used to say, just remember, inanimate objects are out to screw you. So uh, that was what 50 years in television taught him. So we're having a technical problem here. But happy to continue this conversation. I'm wondering if, if, both, if both candidates won, does that mean that they were really preaching to their own pews, so to say, if both candidates won, does that mean that really nobody was going to be affected by what, what happened on that stage last night? I mean, is it really I, going to I, have an effect? I, I would say on large measure, you're right, Cynthia. First, there are very few undecided voters as we go forward, six, seven percent tops. Second, while Biden and Trump both made efforts to reach across the aisle, I didn't really hear anything that I, as a moderate middle of the road person found compelling from either. I mean, Biden sort of said he'll be an American president. Trump spoke when they asked him about unity, about making progress yeah. and that would unify America. Neither did I find so compelling that I thought that large numbers of voters either in the middle or on the uh, right and left would, would swing as a result of it. But I think it was reassuring to their bases that mm -hmm. both were arguably compelling in their own ways. You make an interesting point about who's who's not voted yet. We know that getting close to 50 million Americans have already cast their ballot right. somewhere probably this morning around 44, 45 million have already voted. Um, at this point, you say there are sort of, polls suggest sort of 6% are undecided. About that, um, yeah. You know, 
it's a curiosity to me. I don't know if you saw the comedy skit done the other day. Someone said, you know, undecided. It's like the waitress comes up and says, do you want a tuna melt or do you want poison? And the person said, well, I'm not really sure. I mean, uh, really? Are people still yeah. really let, making let up me, their minds? Let me use your analogy and give you an answer, Cynthia. Uh, do you want a tuna melt? What's a tuna melt? Would you prefer roast beef? You mean they make sandwiches with it? My point being, undecided voters now tend to be very low information. They're wow. the most casual of voters. They're not people who we think they are, who they're weighing all the information, reading every article. They're usually people who low information, don't like either candidate, alienated from the system. That is last time the people in that category broke for Trump about two or three to one because they were voting against Clinton and Obama. Um, whether that'll happen again this time, we don't really know. But undecided voters tend to vote against, they tend to be angry, and they tend not to be too interested. We know there are about 100 million Americans who are eligible to vote, sit on the sidelines every year. There are a lot of prognostications about this is going to have record turnout this year. What, what's your sense about that? You know, I, I've seen no evidence to suggest that the record turnout is going to demonstrably impact the race, though typically big turnout in these kind of situations benefits the Democrats. Um, that being said, the, the countervailing trend, which I think we've all read about, is that the new registrants in a lot of the swing states, Pennsylvania and Florida in particular come to mind, uh, are... Um, um, disproportionately Republican. Also, there's more enthusiasm among the Trump voters than among the Biden voters. But unless the polls are completely off, and I guess they could be. Uh, they have been in the past, yes. Yeah, the, the, the state polls have been. The national polls were largely okay uh, four years ago. They predicted about a three-point Hillary win. She won by 2.1. The state polls were certainly off, but they tend to lag the national. They tend to be done a little bit later in the process. I'm sorry, earlier in the process than mm -hmm. the national polls. And there was clearly a move to Trump at the end. But I think that we're looking at a closer race than the polls suggest. But again, as we sit here today, a Biden advantage. Is it enough that we can predict with certainty he'll win? Uh, I don't think so, but I certainly think he has a clear advantage. So I think the average at the moment, people are saying he, that Biden's ahead by about 11 points nationally. Of course, that, that doesn't necessarily um, mean a win because, we, because the, the swing states are going to, you know, are not at that level. It's certainly not all of them. So, I mean, do you think that, I mean, you, I, you follow these polls more closely than I do. What, what do you think? I'm sort of stalling about the debate. Well, let, until let, we get let me, Rachel let me in give here, you an so. answer. I, there's a good answer to that one. California, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Oregon, Washington are giving uh, Biden a disproportionate lead, maybe five or six points of that 11 points comes there. The swing states are about four points, maybe three point, three and a half, four points. So I, I would say two things. First, the swing states are much, much closer than the uh, overall popular vote. And second, I think some of those polls that are being done that are providing a double digit lead are exaggerating 
Biden's lead. So my take is that it's relatively close in the swing states, about three, three and a half points. Nationally, maybe seven to eight rather than 11 points. Uh, but, but, but again, a clear Biden lead, but enough that I don't think we can uh, uh, say with certainty that Biden uh, has got it locked up. My NBC News colleague, Andrea Mitchell, uh, said last night that it was, she's been uh, doing this for a long time. It was the single best debate performance that she had ever seen Joe Biden turn in. Would you, would you agree with her? Uh, I think uh, if there was a low bar from last time for Trump, having watched Biden debate over many years, <laughs> there was not exactly a high bar for him either. Look, I thought he did fine. I thought the final 45 minutes of the debate uh, for both of them, and but Biden in particular, was not particularly well. I don't think he had much of an answer to the Hunter Biden questions, but I also think that by making the blanket assertion he'd had no economic benefit from them. Uh, 10 days out from an election without uh, clear evidence showing checks going to him or some such, uh, I think that it is unlikely that the race will turn on the allegations about Hunter Biden, the emails of 10% for the big guy, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, that's a good, let me, let me drill down on that. If you had been sure. advising him, would you have had Biden respond more um, granularly to that? Because it seemed to me pretty effective to just look in the camera yeah. and say, I have never taken any form of, I mean, because who can keep track of all the allegations exactly. back and forth? I, if I was preparing Biden, I would have done exactly what his handlers did. I thought it was completely compelling and completely non-responsive. <laughs> uh, always, always a good. It was a perfect answer for the reasons you suggest. Non-responsive because the allegations from the uh, alleged business partner and the emails that uh, I read yesterday are pretty specific and pretty, you know, I think uh, suggestive. Um, I would have loved to have heard a denial, but I don't think we're going to get a denial now. And if I were the Biden campaign, I'd stay as far away from it as possible. Now I see Rachel. Can Rachel hear us? Rachel? I see Rachel. Oh Yay! I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. Like it was it's working okay. just fine. <laughs> it's okay. Literally. We're glad to have you with us now. Have you been able to listen to the conversation until now or, sh or, or no. have you been following along? So let no, me I ask you the, the question I started with Doug. Was there a winner last night? And if so, who was it? Yeah, I mean, number one, I mean, I think it's it's the American people insofar as that they didn't get tortured, you know, with a um, really aggressive reminder of how off the rails we are right now as a democracy. And because, you know, really, I always try to remind people that what we're seeing and living through uh, this last five years, but really, honestly, beyond that, is not normal. And, and we have to keep that frame really focused and center in our thoughts and analyses and uh, efforts, right, that we're bringing to bear in our various ways and dealing with our democratic problem, small d democratic problem. Um, yeah, because, you know, even though this was a much better debate for Donald Trump, certainly I think probably amongst his top five public um, appearances in the five years that he's been out and about, uh, and definitely the best debate performance he had of the two cycles, it was still a, a huge problem for the public because it was chocked full of lies. They're not 
misstatements. They're not, you know, mistruths or whatever the other words are. It's very uncomfortable for journalists because of the norm of um, impartiality to say, you know, the president lied, but he did lie and he lied about things that were very, very, very important for public health. And so it is hard because um, you have to analyze these things as a analyst too. Uh, but, you know, it was uh, abnormal. And I think Nicole Wallace really captured it best at the, uh, in her own analysis, because she, she pointed that out, you know, in, in uh, any other cycle prior to 2016, if a candidate, uh, one of the two presidential nominees, lied about anything, even one big lie, something certainly something as, as important as a vaccine being ready or, um, you, know, uh, you know, the rates going down when they're rising quite quickly, uh, it would have been a massive scandal. The entire green room would have been devoted to the one um, camp coming after the other for the lie and the other camp trying to defend itself. And, you know, we, we're not living in that world right now. And it really is a huge departure. So, all right. So you say Trump did better than usual. Certainly he was appealing to his base. What about Biden? Does that mean Biden won in your mind or was it a draw? Oh, yes. No, in political science, we don't have any illusions about, <laughs> you know, generally speaking, like if a debate goes off the rails, like that first debate does, we get a consensus loser, right? And Donald Trump was the consensus loser from the first debate. But generally speaking, when a debate is, is you know, um, I guess unnoteworthy, though, again, it, it really shouldn't be unnoteworthy that you know, I mean, <laughs> we have an objective reality, you know, um, but when it's unnoteworthy in the Trump era, then it is uh, up to partisans, right? Partisans. So if Trump, Trump, if I'm a Republican or a right-leaning independent, uh, I'm going to say that Trump won that. And if I'm a left uh, Democrat or left-leaning independent, then I'm going to say Biden won it. Uh, and pure independents are probably the people that we should ask, but you have to sort those out of your focus groups and then ask them. And I don't know that, I would love to see some focus groups handled in that way. So, you know, I, Doug and I were pursuing this notion that if, uh, if, if neither, neither side, or if both sides won or neither side won, then sort of what's the point? I guess the point would be swing voters, Doug says maybe six to 7% of voters right now, uh, I, I know your thinking is that swing voters don't necessarily determine outcome as much as sort of pure negative red meat. T t explain. Yeah, no, I mean, that's not, unfortunately, the best known piece of my, um, you know, uh, public uh, research um, was, a, was an article that was written about my research, but it's not one of my articles. And it unfortunately mischaracterizes my, um, my claim about swing voters. Uh, but in political science world, uh, it's pretty well uh, known like fact that most independents, and as you know, in a survey, it's usually like 30, 35% of the survey are independents. And I was just touching on this a second ago. Uh, independents are not actually independents or swing voters, right? Um, they are what we call independent leaners. And, and I used to do polling. So in a poll, they, you ask people, are you Democrat, Republican, or independent? And then if they say independent, you ask them, do you lean towards the Democratic or Republican parties? And then um, most people who, who do lean will admit it. They'll say, I, I lean to the Democrats or Republicans. And in data um, for political science and for other specialities that look at this, 
those leaners behave just like partisans. They have issue preferences just like them. Uh, softer partisans, if you look at it on a gradient scale, but like partisans. And what that means for vote choice, Leslie, this is really important. What that means for a vote choice is that they are as almost as settled as uh, a actual card carrying Republican or Democrat in their vote choice. They are not, they may tell themselves that they're gettable. They may tell you, they may even think like that they are, but like ultimately what the data tells us is that they are just as likely to cast a ballot for a Republican or a Democrat as their out of closet um, counterparts. So we call them embarrassed partisans. And I have been on Twitter, you know, showing, trying to show people as of July 1st, how settled lean independence and that whittles uh, to Trump or Biden. And it's like not, almost nine, 90% are going with Trump or Biden. And these are people that, it, you know, a stump reporter like my friend Walter Shapiro would find on the street and have a nice nuanced conversation about issues. And it would really sound like this person is, you know, gonna make this agonized choice. But in the truth of the matter is the data don't lie, right? They are nine out of 10 times gonna cast a ballot for their leaned party. So and what does that tell us basically? Okay, so that six or 7% who say that they have not made up their minds yet, what do we know about what way they're leaning? Yeah, so that's, uh, so that's where my theory pops in. And my theory is actually arguing two innovations about, about that group, that 6%. And it's arguing two things. It's arguing number one, in the polarized era, this group has a status quo bias and thus can be anticipated to break against the status quo. So back when I released my forecast on July 1st of 2019, before there were candidates, uh, and uh, I said, look, these pure indies are probably going to break in favor of the Democratic nominee. And the reason is that, you know, even to, uh, you know, to us, a good economy is a good status quo, maybe, right? But to regular Americans, you know, it's not uh, unless it's like a good economy for the bottom 50, which it hasn't been for 30 years, right? Um, so the status quo always sucks for these guys. They're not they're not generally speaking well informed, you know, purveyors of information reading and agonizing over candidates, though you can find some on your reporting. Uh, they're oftentimes, um, you know, civically minded, but not particularly into civics, news and information. And so what they do, they're very imagistic. And they get us, and guess what happens when you in, are in office? Once you're in office, the news covers you. If you're Donald Trump or Barack Obama, it's usually criticism. And so those people just hear, hear constantly about what a terrible job you do, right? And um, they, so basically they, get, they develop a bias against the status quo and they always think change sounds good. So my theory postulates that we could look at these guys as breaking 55, 45 likely in favor of the out party and the polarized era. Uh, and, and what the pandemic effect is under this theory, by the way, is instead of a 55, 45, now we're looking at a, at a bigger break in you know biased against the in party, especially because Trump mismanaged that pandemic so badly, right? Uh, he could have managed it well and possibly upset part of my theory. And then the other thing about independence that no one has realized or talked about is that they have a turnout swing. So I show in this article in the New Republic uh, uh, published last year, it's called Hateism Ballot, 
that that independence because there's so many leaners in that pocket they have a uh, tendency to respond to something called negative partisanship which is the emotions that you feel in relation to the opposition party uh it is hate okay and that and it, it's funny to look at that they're like oh you know democrats and republicans are making voodoo dolls of each other but it's also fear right it's like you know it, and, it, and it's real fear like okay they're gonna overturn roe v wade or you know on the right it's you know they're gonna take you know mm -hmm. um you know we're gonna make christianity illegal or take my guns away these are passionate fears that people feel that get heightened when the other party has the power or at least the perceived power to actually do these things so when you look mm -hmm. at what happened during the obama era you had that tea, bar tea party rebellion um you had so much energy in the in right. the political right and now um you know that flipped over in 2018 or 2016 right after the election and manifested first in virginia in 2017 which is how it benefited me yeah. being here but independents are sensitive to that as well they're not partisans right they're not partisans but because they're leaners and they have this um they have these same tendencies i have you know i'm, I'm arguing mm -hmm. look I've, I've found a new manifestation of independent leaders acting as partisans and what they do is they turn out surge uh so we might have a hundred independents in a district that voted for Obama and then Trump, right? But now, but we also had a hundred that voted for Obama and then weren't inspired for Clinton and didn't vote, right? Yeah. That's a turnout mm. swing. And yeah. now those people are going to come back because they're they're um, riled up by um, by Trump now because he's not a hypothetical uh, and yeah. also far off one that was never going to happen. Now he's real. And, and the terminator that can't be killed right i mean that figuratively like you know the term because mm -hmm. people have the sense that no matter how good the yeah. polls are you can't beat trump so these yeah. independent turnout surges are going to be very important so let's let's go that, that's fascinating and i i, I think let, let's try to go through all the categories um that uh, christian walker led us through last night and i have to say um uh, i suspect you would agree with the the vast number of people who uh, weighed in on the moderator. Christian Welker really oh, did a master class in moderation and, you know, last I, night. I just love when women deliver, you know? <laughs> well, she's a terrific human in, in addition to being a terrific journalist. So um, let, let's start with the coronavirus section. Doug, um, how do you think, was the president at his best? Did, did we see the essence of his position when it came to coronavirus in the, in the opening set of questions? Cynthia, I'd make the case rather simply that but for coronavirus, Donald Trump, notwithstanding what Rachel said, I think he would have been reelected rather comfortably. And that being said, he's clearly behind. I agree with the bulk of Rachel's comments about how this election will go. And I would say again, simply that um, the reason is the uh, virus and how he and his administration have handled it. That being said, I thought he put the best face he could on a situation that is um, extraordinarily damaging to our country, to people's lives, and to his political fortunes. Um, I'm speaking as a political analyst, not uh, assessing the veracity of what he said. Uh, it may well be that we don't get a, uh, a vaccine 
until the end of the year. But listening to what he said, I think it's the case we're on the path to getting a vaccine. We're on the path to um, having better treatments. The problem I have with the way Trump has handled this from the start is because he has exaggerated so much, all it lies. But even call him a serial exaggerator, most Americans understand that he has um, not faced up to the reality of the situation. He certainly hasn't done it with any humility or grace. And while I felt he was better last night than he's ever been, there still was no acknowledgement that we could have done things differently. Or that yeah, Joe Biden. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Made, made mistakes. Sorry. No, no. It, 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 so Biden did have a snappy one-liner in that first, in that opening where he said, yeah. to yeah, to the Trump. 220 thousand uh, uh, people dead, if you remember one thing from the debate, remember that. And that is the essence of what is, I think, swinging the election to Biden now, which is the fact that people understand that the president could have done a better job handling the virus, that the infection rate and the rate of death and hospitalization is unfortunately much higher than it should be or could be in the world's most advanced and sophisticated democracy. Yeah, he had another good line. Just the president had said, we're learning to live with the virus. And he said, no, Americans are learning to die with the virus. That seemed to me to be something that uh, that he had thought out in advance. Yeah, I'm sure um, that's true. Maybe yeah. scored. Um, Rachel, would you agree that the president uh, presented his point of view? I, let's, let's leave the, <laughs> I don't know if we can leave the Democracy falsehoods aside. <laughs> Well, I mean, part of the president's job last night was to, sh I guess, not just shore up the base, but try to reach some of those folks who, who may be reachable. Did he do that? You want to do that if you're trying to win an election, you know? I mean, I mean that's the thing is like, uh, I, you know, I study and teach best practices of electioneering, or at least I used to, right? And there's like, you know, there's a best practices for pandemic management, just, just like there's a best practices for electioneering. I mean, there's there's a couple categories that Trump excels at, right? Uh, base mobilization is definitely one of them, but that's it, you know? And uh, he does things that are like, you know, uh, an antithetical to it's, you know, to winning in a general election. And one of those is that he doesn't do that triangulation in a general election. We had never seen a strategy like that in a general election before in terms of strategic choice. Uh, every nominee that we've ever had comes out of their party primary and strategically repositions themselves for a general election, right? And we had never seen a candidate just go and run a base strategy all the way through. But don't you think that what he's, sorry to interrupt, but don't you think that he's operating out of his 2016 playbook? Oh, yes. I mean, it worked last time, the right? Same strategy, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not a strategy that any advisor would want him to do, right? His first it worked last time. Right? Yeah. Well, so that's why they can't get him to stop. The first, <laughs> the first debate, his team wanted him to do what he did last night, but he had a different plan in mind, so he went and did it. And it, and this is this is exactly what happened in the first debate last time, and then it didn't work. And then he actually spent three or four days arguing that it did work, that everyone else was wrong and they loved and they, the world loved it. You know, even though obviously the world didn't love it, but eventually yeah. it did convince him 
but it didn't work. So they did get him to come out last night and, and tone and temperament, do what he needed to do. But again, what I'm talking about, you know, it's, and it's, it is, it's difficult for people to get to wrap their head, heads around it because I am arguing. I mean, the, debates don't have, and the political science, this is not my theory, um, you know, in political science, there's an argument called minimal effects. And this is even before polarization came along. So like even before, even before the polarized era, you know, American politics uh, at the PhD research level had argued that uh, presidential campaigns have don't have room to have much effect on vote choice because of the power of partisanship. And, and when I say the word hyper partisanship, like that's taking that research that was yeah. done pre 2000 and the polarized era begins around the year 2000 and, and compounding it, right? So if it already yeah. didn't have much room to matter, it really mm -hmm. doesn't matter now. And so, but so, yes. it's all in effect after that first debate. Like we definitely saw, you know, a little bit of erosion in, in the polls. And I was going to reply to Douglas's point and say where we're really seeing it matter isn't so much on Trump because he's kind of tapped out where he um, can erode. Where we're seeing it is on that Senate map. And that's why, you know, his Senate colleagues are like, yeah. you know. So let's move on to the second point in the debate, though. So the national security and the security of the election was the second topic that Welka brought up. And um, what what did you think there? I mean, one of my overarching concerns as we as we march towards November third is the degree to which Americans uh, have come to question and lose some degree of trust in the system partially because of the Russians and other foreign bad actors, and partially because of things that the president has said yeah. repeatedly. Um, trust is important. I mean, <laughs> one, yeah. one writer said to me recently, you know, democracy is like Tinkerbell. Once yeah. you stop believing, she dies. Oh so Doug, gosh. what about that? Yeah, let yeah. me get Doug so in here. in real crisis. Like, uh, you know, I, um, I, don't, I don't mince my words. We have had, um, we have suffered institutional failure in the Senate. We are seeing serious erosion of democratic accountability. So the ability of the public to respond to, um, you know, malfeasance of public officials and things like that has severely eroded. And, um, you know, it's a serious problem, right? When the president can stand at a presidential debate, the sitting incumbent president of the United States, he's not candidate Trump, okay? stands there on a presidential debate stage hosted by the debate commission and literally says, you know, hey, that's okay, we're gonna make ballots disappear. That's, you know, we teach like, um, you know, what makes a democracy mm -hmm. a democracy, yeah. I think these you know, seven principles, free and fair elections and, yeah. you know, trusting government is one of the most important cornerstones as you just touched on in that, um, to have a president open you know kind of conducting open warfare and it's not it's not him just blowing steam okay i want to no. make that really clear yeah like that would be that would be it would be inappropriate but you could then just say oh it's just trump being trump but it's not just trump being trump the woman that runs the rnc ronna mcdaniel and bill barr who runs the justice department and or you know a, a um division of the government whose charge it is by the way, 
to ensure that people have the right to vote, to protect the vote, the sanctity of the vote. They are moving um, resources and deploying um, people in lawsuits to enact the things that he is talking about. It's not like it's a just all um, words, right? So we let do. me let me bring Doug in. Doug, so what's your perspective on this? Um, I, how no. worried are you about foreign bad actors? How worried are you about American sense of trust in the system? Um, how is this going to play out when you look in your sure. crystal ball? Well, uh, of course, I'm worried about foreign bad actors, mm -hmm. but candidly, I think uh, it is more a threat to the system than a threat to the count of the vote. I hope I'm right in that. If I'm wrong, uh, it's, it's, it's even worse than I suspect. But uh, I, I don't think, notwithstanding the information from yesterday that the Russians and the Iranians have our voter registration information, that they are able to influence um, the election fundamentally, notwithstanding the emails that have gone out saying vote for Donald Trump or else, uh, if those be uh, actual emails. Mm -hmm. um, I do worry greatly that if this race does tighten up um, for whatever reason, that if say Florida, Pennsylvania, North Carolina uh, go to Donald Trump, Arizona to Donald Trump, that we could get into a situation where the credibility of the count, particularly both the absentee and the early voting ballots could be thrown into question. Trump has made it clear he's prepared to do that. And uh, while I, I, I don't think we want to spend too much time on what it would be if there was a dispute in the Electoral College and the race was thrown either into the House of Representatives or there was a court case or both, nonetheless, I think there is the potential for the first time in my career that we could have an election with an uncertain result, an uncertain uh, outcome and uh, uncertain credibility. And uh, that scares me. And I very much hope that either way, we have a decisive outcome because it would be calamitous for our already fragile system for yeah. us to have uh, a, a 2000 election result nationally sort of hanging chads on steroids. Yeah, I mean, and, and Rachel, yes, Rachel, just Cynthia, briefly, because we've got a lot to cover and we've got to, yeah, we've yeah. Got to go to questions. Can I add one thing, too? Yeah. Like, there, the, 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 the scenario that Douglas points out, dude, that is bad enough, but the fact that it's being articulated that way is what concerns me. Let, you know, um, that's the strategy is, you know, let's get through the night counts and hopefully still be in the game, you know, by not losing Florida, right? right? Uh, that keeps Trump in the game. And then, you know, the, the we know that Trump has pushed away all these Republican voters from vote by mail. And we can see this in the polling data. We can see Democrats are saying, I'm voting by mail. And Republicans who usually dominate vote by mail are like, oh, I'm not doing it. And so like the chip, when I said they are moving pieces, their plan is to kind of use the media machine that they have, Fox News and that right-wing media machine to declare, oh, look, Trump's ahead in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan mm -hmm. on that day voting and then start to gum the counts with lawsuits. So like, that's not an accident though, right? It's like yes, one thing to have right. Bush v. Gore, 
right. but it's quite another to articulate one, right? To create right. a scenario, right? So, I mean, listen, you're, you're, you're articulating what I think a lot of people are worrying about, both of you. Listen, I'm going to skip skip over a couple of things because I want to get some questions in and we'll have Patricia help us with that in just one second. But I just want to go to oil. It, it was at the very end of the debate. I suspect a lot of people had already gone to bed, but in the very last minutes of the debate, um, Joe Biden said something that I think surprised a lot of folks, which is that he wants to see the transition out of business of the oil companies. How's, how's that going to work, Doug? I think it came too late in the debate and was too murky for Trump to make anything of it in the context of a campaign with 10 days to go. I think if he tied that to fracking, uh, to the Green New Deal and AOC, there's, there's, there, there is an avenue there. But I think this came a little late, in the, very late in the process, late in the debate. And I agree with the premise of your question. It's potentially an opening for Trump. But I doubt that it will be enough to demonstrably impact the election. Very briefly, because I want to go to questions. But I have to say, for, for me, as a viewer, I was deeply moved when Kristen Welker asked the question about the talk. Under the, under the heading of Race in America and asked the two candidates to talk about um, that sad circumstance in which um, black and brown parents have to sit their kids down and explain to them what to do if they're stopped by the police. Yeah. Um, in, in, a, in, a, in a, it seemed to me a really human way. The question was powerful, especially coming from her. Did, did either side do a better job with that answer, do you think? Rachel, let's start with you briefly though. Donald Trump is not good on race. I mean, he's terrible at empathy, generally speaking. And, um, you know, I mean, I mean, what, you know. <laughs> so you'd say Biden won that round. Yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely D Donald Trump on the issue, especially of police violence is very difficult. It's difficult to take somebody seriously anyway on, on what they would say about that when they're running ads telling white suburbanites you know hey black men are going to come invade your suburban dreams and you know commit crimes against you right so he's like perpetrating or like a you know adding to that myth of the criminal mm -hmm. black male right so you know I, did he I but know. did he score any points doug when he when he said to biden you look you and the super predator here the crime bill put an awful lot of uh, black young men in prison did he do you think he made any advances this isn't the first time we've heard the argument of course no i don't think he did because his basic argument uh vis-a-vis -vis blacks is that uh, he did criminal justice reform yeah uh it's sort of like i let him out of prison I, I think there is a much better and more nuanced argument that they haven't made, which is we've had a, we've had social and economic progress. We've changed our laws. I've tried to be inclusive, but that's not Trump and that's not the way he thinks. And so the fact that he threw in what I thought was a good hit on Biden, I think probably will not have much, if any, impact. Doug, just in a, in a word or two, does the argument resonate with voters when Trump says, listen, you've had 48 years, Joe, and you haven't fixed these things? I mean, seriously, yeah. does that yeah. play? I thought that it was a good argument, but you know, Cynthia, it came a couple of times during the debate. He didn't frame the election as an insider-outsider choice as he did vis-a-vis -vis Hillary, mm -hmm. I thought compellingly then. I thought this was a theme that he could have used 
more during the campaign. It emerged last night a few times, but I don't think there was enough of it, again, to fundamentally influence the contest. All right, Patricia, come in and help us uh, get some folks up uh, and let them ask their questions. All right, well, you did an, an unbelievable job getting about the process of counting the votes and the issues that it's all about. So first question, let's go to the West Coast, Sean Daniel, or when I knew you, you were head of Universal Pictures, but we're happy to have a question from you. I see his little box, but I don't I really go unmuted. Hello. Incredible background right there, huh? There he I is. Think I, I think I have successfully unmuted myself. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you it wouldn't be thank a Zoom you. without that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and thank you all for a great panel. And uh, Patricia, the common good is always uh, so uh, important and interesting. My question, and uh, you guys have spoken to it, so I, I'll make it just very specific. Will the answer regarding oil production hurt in the very close swing state of Pennsylvania? Doug, let's start with you. Uh, you know, I don't think it will, but if I were the Trump campaign, I would be doing targeted mailings and phone uh, calls to central and western Pennsylvania making that argument, because the states within now I guess about four points, and you look for the kind of issues that'll be distinguishing and local in the final days of the campaign, and that's certainly one uh, link to fracking as well. Well, and the, you, we know that the president promised a video today showing that Joe Biden had opposed fracking. Biden yep, says that yep. was on government land, but we ought to be watching to see if that gets posted. Yes, that would be we, very interesting. Yeah. Rachel, do you want to comment on that one? I remember the I remember the video, so it was actually on federal land. <laughs> just just FYI, um, and uh, the uh, yeah no in Texas, I I would assume right not so much uh, Texas's economy, is, I mean Oklahoma too, but it's not competitive, is heavily heavily reliant on oil, and so I would assume that they'll be taking that and running it aggressively, as will the Cornyn campaign. Um, because it was a gap, right? And ba Biden's already walked that back to say that he's talking about the subsidies, that he wants to end the oil subsidies by 2035, which makes yeah. sense because it would be tremendously difficult to end uh, our oil dependency by 2035. I mean, I, that's, a, that's a pretty bold uh, target that I don't think anybody could hit, right? Uh, we're only talking about 15 years, right? Less than, you know, 15 years, yeah. Let's so, um, I'm sorry? Sorry, I think we ought to move on to another question though. Want to just conclude that thought? Yeah, that's it. I mean, that, yeah. he, I don't know if you guys know that, but he released a statement yeah. walking it back. But I mean, it doesn't matter because they're going to have the footage. Right. Great. Okay. Thank you we for the question. Yeah, thank you. We've got time for just a couple more questions. I'm going to go to Gillian Sorensen. You with us? Here she comes. Can you hear me now? Yes, yes. perfect. Yes. Uh, thank you all for such an interesting discussion. I just wanted to ask if you would reflect on the spillover impact on some of the key Senate races, and particularly Mitch McConnell and also Lindsey Graham. Sure. Um, I think from what I've seen in the polling that uh, 
Lindsey Granin is probably narrowly ahead uh, now, though. Jamie Harrison's performance in the polls and his fundraising are extraordinary. South Carolina is an operationally Republican state. Trump, at least from what I've seen, is well ahead. So I'd have to say Graham is a, is a favorite there, not without uh, outside the realm of possibility he could lose, but that would require a real blue wave. And I think McConnell will be reelected. Kentucky, despite having a Democratic registration, is also uh, an even more Republican state than South Carolina now, if the polls be believed. So I think Mitch McConnell will be reelected. Looks like Olympia Snow is, I mean, Olympia Snow, whoops. It looks, it looks like Susan Collins uh, may not be. Uh, I think that's right. Re-elected. Collins in uh, Maine. Hickenlooper uh, is likely to be Gardner uh, in Colorado. And I would say in Arizona, Mark Kelly is the clear favorite over Martha McSally. Want to go to another question? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, mean, I have a Senate forecast that's quantitative like Nate Silver's, so. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, my Senate forecast came out in April and predicted that Arizona, Colorado, and Maine would all flip and that the fourth pivotal seat would be North Carolina. Uh, that's the seat for Democrats if they want to take control of the Senate. That's the Cal Cunningham seat. Um, and it really is very, very close, though the polling has put Cunningham ahead. Uh, North Carolina can be tricky because it comes down to um, African-American turnout. Uh, but again, you know, we're really talking about a surge electorate and the early vote and uh, black turnout has really been good. As you know, though, the Trump campaign has been micro-targeting black voters pretty aggressively through the cycle. So we'll see uh, if they are able to shave off enough from that um, group. But yeah, um, in terms of that though, you also have Iowa Senate, you have Kansas Senate, Montana, and Alaska, all looking competitive, right? So when you're thinking about being Mitch, and, and Kentucky's different. I mean, it's just, it's a very white population, doesn't have a lot of African-American population, and very low college education. So that surge turnout is just, it's, it's tough to see that flipping. South Carolina, I moved to a toss-up several months ago. Right. I, I don't know that he can make it over the finish line, but it's going to be competitive for sure. Um, but they have so many pathways to that majority. They may actually exceed it. They may actually go above it. It's, it's, it uh, if the election was held like last week, they probably would have gone, you know, 52 seats. Rachel, just a point of clarification from me. When the president said last night that he thinks that the House is going to be Republican as a, as a result of the election, was he just making that up or is yes. there any evidence? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, I mean, he, <laughs> he makes a lot of things up. <laughs> he made up a vaccine. You know, he made up that the virus is going down. It's skyrocketing. I mean, those things are, those things matter. I mean, I would argue than a little, like, flippant comment about the house right you but know? there's no evidence is what i would say there is no evidence yeah there's the, no the evidence of that no i mean play. you know you have to you have to understand though in in politics like that like if you're trying to get candidates to make phone calls all day to raise money you have to keep spirits up right so insider um polling that's why you know there's a lot of that stuff that goes on you have to keep people raising money and competing you know Another question? How about, uh, real quick, we'll get Dariush Manavi, are you still there? And then Stan Cohen. 
We're oh, can you hear me? Yep. yep. Okay, great. Thanks. And yeah. thanks for the panel as usual. You're wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, really uh, don't understand the need for Biden to constantly uh, use the word, I will raise taxes, the words, I will raise taxes. I mean, he can say things a lot less uh, definitively. Uh, and given how much Trump lies, I just wonder what the motivation is. And is it a necessity from his base that he has to say that? <laughs> let, let me take that on. <laughs> We're both going to want to go on that one. <laughs> I, I, I agree. If I was advising Biden, which I am not, I would have told him not to talk about raising taxes on anybody. The principal argument of the Trump campaign in swing states is that Biden is a big spender, big taxer. And to say, I will only raise taxes on uh, those who make more than $400,000 qualifies as, um, you know, something that is arguably taken by the voters to mean uh, uh, he's going to raise taxes. We can't trust him. So if I were advising him, I would have told him to take a different approach. And the reason he does it is Democrats tend to be populist now, increasingly so. And there's a school of thought, which is not my own, that if you say you're going to tax the rich, it works well with working voters who think that it will somehow produce a fairer and more just outcome. Yeah, so uh, on my end, I spend a lot of time talking about messaging, um, you know, messaging and comparing the two party strategies on it. Republicans are ace messaging. They've been fine tuning it for the last 20 years. They're unfortunately so good at it that it actually helped, you know, really formulate the Republican Civil War, which we're on the other side of now. Um, and Democrats struggle. Uh, a lot of that comes from the fact that Democrats don't speak to the gut, they speak to the head, and they also make assumptions about voters, right? So like, um, I think uh, on Twitter last night, like some of the media elites that I hang out with on Twitter, were like, oh, it's a, such a good thing that Biden didn't, um, you know, bother responding to the fact that Trump was coming after Hunter Biden on these corruption charges, because everybody knows that the Trump kids you know, are milking the, their government jobs for money, right? And I'm like, no, uh, like 10% of the population, the entire country's population knows that. And like 6% are on the other side of you and they don't care, right? Like nobody knows that. And you just passed up an opportunity to tell 70 million people that, right? So yeah, um, Democrats are terrible at messaging. And then Biden personally <clears throat> is not, he's, that's just not in his bones. Like um, some people are good at just being in government and doing the job of legislating. Like Nancy Pelosi's great at that. And some people are good at campaigning. Like Barack Obama is great at the stump uh, and messaging and really hitting a message. Uh, Joe Biden's not that guy, right? Like if he was, you know, those immigration moments last night, though potent because the issue was, could have been so much more potent. I mean, we're talking, by the way, we have 300, I think it's like 500 kids are, are still orphaned. That's half, okay? Half of the kids that were taken at the border are orphaned. You know, like, well, you know, three years later, 
So if you were a five-year-old, now you're eight. Like there's tons of ways to message in ways that make much more impact. And Biden, that's not Biden. He's not savvy like that. So I think, Patricia, we're just slightly over time, but you want to squeeze in one more question? I want to, uh, if we can, real quick, guys, Stan Cohen, because um, this has been a fantastic panel, Cynthia. Really, you're terrific. and been such a good sport. Stan, do you have a quick question? I and will make we'll it quick, answers. Patricia. Uh, it's just, I was very moved by the last two comments uh, into the question to close it up. And I was very moved by... Uh, by Trump not saying anything, and Biden really coming home with, a, with what I thought was a true button of, I am your president. And I just wanted to know what the commentators thought. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I would personally agree, but I think by the end of the debate, most people had largely tuned out. <laughs> what do you think, Rachel? Do you agree? I mean, again, you know, we're talking, I mean, so like I, I have a, I mean, I, I have a thing coming out for a very popular show that I can't name on undecided voters. And I had told them when we were filming it, I was like, you know what you should do is you should do the whole, whole clip where like, you're not undecided, you know, call them out because they're totally lying. Like that's how like a lot of these events with undecided voters, <laughs> you know, they're not undecided. So I agree. I bet most people were tuned out. I think the money line for the whole event, it was definitely when Biden, you know, said, um, you know, it, 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 there's 200,000 dead Americans. It's not, uh, you know, they're not over it or whatever. I can't remember the line. I'm very terrible with remembering and name remembering um so um but he, trump said something about you know this the pandemic's basically oh we should just get over it and, and biden returned with well the two hundred thousand dead of people can't get over it that was um a really powerful line and i think you know is it towards the beginning of the debate and i think that was i think that that really hammers home like the point of the election is that we can't just ignore this pandemic and many Americans, especially senior citizens, either they vote at 80%, okay? Young people vote 40%. So losing a big chunk of that senior vote, it, you know, that's very, uh, that's why Florida is so competitive for Biden. Well, you guys I just wanna say thank you, Patricia. That was really fun. Thanks for the Cynthia, chance to talk to you. Doug and thank you. Yeah, I'm so you're, sorry you're about the fantastic. No, so glad you made I'm it. I'm so glad I remembered I have this laptop. I mean, you know, I haven't left my house in so long. <laughs> I forgot I owned one laptop. I was like, oh, a laptop. I forgot. And then, you know, I don't know why, but I glanced real quick and I thought that I saw Leslie Stahl. So that was fun. And I um um I slept like four hours last night. And then, you know, I'm on that, I'm on the election finale, um, you know, non-sleeping uh, wow. marathon right now, so. Now, we're so grateful for you to come today and Doug for showing up at the last yeah. minute. And Cynthia, you were so great when we had you for Sebastian Younger and Tim Hetherington, remember that? I sure do, yes. I've been watching, uh, I've been a fan, obviously, for a long time. I mean, I don't want to say years, you know. I'm, I'm 40, I'm 43, so, you know, I've been watching. My career is young because I didn't go to college till I was 
uh, a little seasoned <laughs> and I finished my PhD in 2015. So I, my career is young, but I've been watching, but I'm older and I've been watching you and enjoying your career and all the trailblazers. nothing, my friend. Nothing. <laughs> all the all right. Women, you know? Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you.